Welcome to Level 3. Coronavirus NZ, a daily stuff podcast. Yeah, just have a look around at what you can get at Level 3, Adam. Takeaways, tradies, school. Menswear, ladieswear, mink coats. Kind of, you know, farmers are still shut. Not online, it's not. So contactless menswear, contactless ladieswear, you know. Mm. Anyway, welcome to Coronavirus NZ for Tuesday the 28th of April. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham. For a few weeks now, we've been bringing you daily updates on the news around coronavirus, some of the more unusual things about this global crisis, and then taking a closer look at one particular thing. Hey Adam, you excited? Very. Macca's is open and I cannot wait. There were queues from 3.30am at some stores this morning, which is interesting. No, I didn't mean that. Didn't mean that. Well, what, what, you're talking about surfing then? That's allowed again. I could, if I chose, go and catch a gnarly tube whilst hanging 10 or or nine even. No, 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 not that, not that. Parliament's back, baby. Question time. Winston Peters was even quoting Gandhi. Oh, really? Hey, I've got a question. What is it? Where is our Bluetooth app? Australian Twitter is losing its mind over the COVID safe app. That's the new contact tracing thing you put on your smartphone. Just been launched in Australia. It's a bit like the Singaporean one, you know. You get sick, they have a look to see who you've been in contact with and so on. So some people seem to be worrying that COVID safe is going to bring in, I don't know, essentially world government by lizard people and all that sort of thing. And it feels to me that Australia is once again getting ahead of us. Where is, where's New Zealand's Bluetooth? Where are our lizard people? Mm, I'll look into it. Later we speak with Dr. Joe Kerman about how you can get immunity to COVID-19 and whether these immunity passports we've heard about are a good idea or not. But first, what's happened today? Another small number today, just three cases. There are nine people in hospital, including one in intensive care at Middlemore. There are now 1,214 people who've recovered from COVID-19. That's 82% of all cases. Worldwide, the number of confirmed cases of coronavirus has passed 3 million. That's according to researchers at Johns Hopkins University. And almost a third of those 3 million are in the US. The global death toll from COVID-19 recently passed 200,000. Back home, the Minister for Social Development, Carmel Cipolloni, has announced a Keep New Zealand Working programme. It includes a range of initiatives for people who have lost work. The measures include an online recruitment tool that connects job seekers directly to the employer, as well as online training courses. I was at the supermarket yesterday, looked at the shelves, went to the flower aisle, still no flower. Hmm. And it got me thinking, you know, Both of us have been involved in some pretty heavyweight investigative journalism, and it's time we put that journalistic firepower to use. Yeah, sure, I'm ready. I I think we need to launch an investigation, and I think we should call it WTF. What the... That's a bit rude. No, no, no. Where's the flour? So we were told that there was a rush on flour and other products at the start, and of course it all sold, but, you know, other stuff has come back. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I did a supermarket trip this weekend. It was... A little bit less scary, actually, than the past. I, with, with the amount of COVID roaming around, I wasn't sort of showering and disinfecting when I got home this time. But anyway, I noticed there was almost all the shelves were looking fine. There was uh, the meat aisle was heaving. There was enough meat you could put together a Frankenstein cow if you had enough you know, string and stuff. Uh, plenty of veggies, plenty of beer. I know you're just because we can't get beer in the supermarket out west. But anyway, flour. 
we're going to investigate. So step one of any deep investigation, understand the problem. And we know someone who can help us. She's even written publicly about this. Her name is Kylie Klein-Nixon. She's a writer for Stuff. She's at the coalface. She's been making scones. She's a flower user. We've got her on the line. Kylie, welcome. Can you please tell us about your baking? What have you been up to? Oh, well, what haven't I baked? I've baked... I've just been baking non-stop since I, I first grabbed my first bag of flour off the shelves. I've got, I've done scones, savoury, sweet. I've done a, a lockdown loaf. I baked a chocolate cake that was literally the best thing I've ever made in my entire life. Last night I made some corn fritters and I'm actually thinking I might try some genuine baking alchemy and do a sourdough starter. Oh. We're talking about the big stuff now. That's the that- big stuff. That is the big stuff. But would you say that you've got a signature piece as such? I mean, can you do that thing on the pie crust with the flowers and the leaves? Oh, I, 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 I probably could. I probably could, but I'm, I'm a scone person. Scones are my thing. I think if you can make the perfect scone, then nothing else really matters. You can always feed yourself or someone else with a good scone. Scones are the basis of life, really. So you, you wrote about this obsession with baking. What sort of response <laughs> did you get? Oh, it was phenomenal. I got well. I, I actually offered to share the lemonade scone recipe that a dear friend of my grandmother's sort of handed down to us. And um, I've, today I've had like 25, 30 requests <laughs> for the lemonade scone recipe, which is doesn't sound like a lot, but it's significantly up on the, the kinds of emails I usually get after my columns. So it's, you know, there are people out there who are desperate for scone information. We've gone nuts with baking during the lockdown. What do you think's going on that has led a response to a virus taking the form of heating up ground wheat in various complicated ways. What, what's it about? I genuinely think it's a it's a sense of like of control. Like you've got control over this thing and you're providing for your family at the same time. And you're also, you know, you're it's it's make work. It's busy work that you actually end up with a usable thing at the end or you know a valuable item at the end. You know, you're baking a cake or a scones or bread. And also I think it's a sort of make do wartime you know, usefulness. I genuinely do think it's that because that's how it feels to me. It's like when I finish making a loaf of bread or making a batch of scones, I feel useful in a way that I don't when I'm sitting at a computer or, you know, binge watching a TV show or even just like, you know, any other kind of doing my usual chores. And it's there's something sort of old world and charming about it as well, you know. It makes us feel productive, doesn't it, in a way that yeah, exactly. vacuuming, vacuuming doesn't. Yeah, yeah. there's stuff you have to do anyway. And um, yeah, also you can take nice Instagram pictures. (laughs) Have you got any idea of the scale of what's been going on in our nation's kitchens? Like just how much flour have we been using? Apparently New Zealanders have bought 1,500 tonnes more (sighs) flour than they usually buy during those four weeks of of lockdown. Wow. Compared to the same period last year. That's 1.5 million kilograms. That's a hell of a lot. Right, so in a kilogram you get Maybe six, is it six cups, maybe? So that's, that's a lot of loaves of bread. That's a lot of loaves of bread. So as you know, Kylie, this is an investigative podcast, uh, so it's time to cut to the chase. We want to know more about the flour supply chain. And as everyone knows, with any precious commodity, it's all about economics. It's supply and demand. Think cocaine, rhino horn, blood diamonds, dirty bombs. Um, sure, the suppliers might be bad guys. you Pablo Escobar and the guys who shoot the white rhinos. Oh, guys and women, I mean. Uh, but the real cause of these these problems, these supply chain issues, 
It's the demand end. It's the people who just can't go without their fix. So Kylie, do you really need that much flour? Do you realise the trouble you're causing? Look, I know it's a privilege. At the moment, I've got three and a half, maybe four bags of flour that I'm sitting on. One of them's wholemeal. So, I mean, you know, I'm getting into the really hard stuff now. So I know it's a problem. I don't know how long it'll last, how long I can keep going, but I'm just going to bake it if I've got it. Thank you, Kylie. Your personal testimony has really given us some insight into the urges and addictions that drive the flower trade and also some insight into the extremes that flower users are going to. Our thoughts and prayers are with you. Thanks, guys. I flicked over the BBC News on TV late last night and the second headline was Coronavirus is currently eliminated in New Zealand, said in a BBC voice, of course. To be honest, I did a bit of a double take. I rewinded it to make sure I'd heard it properly. The BBC wasn't alone either. Others like CNN had New Zealand claims elimination of coronavirus with new cases in single digits. The stories were quoting Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and the Director General of Health, Dr Ashley Bloomfield, who at Monday's briefing had said the low number of cases does give us confidence that we have achieved our goal of elimination. That's his words. He did then to go on to say that elimination did not mean there were no new cases, but it does mean that we know where our cases are coming from. Still, I went off to be a little bit puzzled, with part of me wondering, well, if we've eliminated the virus, why are we only at level three, say? Why aren't we at two or, or one? Why can't I go hug my family or friends? You know, when you read that New Zealand has achieved elimination of coronavirus, Sort of sounds like we're done, right? The battle is over. Yeah, and so I can return to my old habit of licking cans in the supermarket. No, Adam, don't do that, ever. Anyway, the point of this all is that language matters, because language impacts behaviour. When we hear the word elimination, we get a bit excited, don't we? A bit of a false storm was created, I think. So what does elimination actually mean? And I mean, for that matter, what does eradication mean? To me, they both sound like they mean it's totally gone, but we know that's not quite right, yeah? No, and Dr. Bloomfield was trying to explain himself at the 1pm press conference today. He, he said he wanted to clarify his comments from Monday. He repeated his definition of elimination. It's not zero cases. It's a very low number of new cases and, crucially, the ability to control and trace them. Elimination is not a point in time, he said. It's an ongoing process. I thought I was following along, but then he said something that sort of turned it all upside down again. We haven't eliminated, we haven't eradicated it, he said. So it's it's kind of a muddle. I guess what it boils down to is we've got COVID on the back foot, but that doesn't mean it's all over, far from it. In the next few weeks, as we move out of lockdown, you've got to hope the government figures out a way to communicate this stuff without misleading the likes of the BBC or CNN headline writers and confusing us Kiwis at the same time. Confusion about what's going on in New Zealand is pretty widespread, contagious almost, you might say. So there was another article over the weekend. It was the American news organisation Bloomberg, pretty reliable outfit as a rule. They're talking about why New Zealand's COVID-19 response was better than America's. It was an opinion piece. Um, and there's a lot of the usual stuff. They're saying we were faster and more rigorous than the states, more careful with the welfare of essential blue-collar workers, better organised and so on. A lot of it was about what was happening there. But... The author, a guy called Joe Nasera, was using New Zealand in the comparison because his son is living here, apparently. But some of the claims that Joe rattled off were pretty dubious. What like? Well, he said that online shopping was banned, which that's not quite right. He said that there was a one-hour time limit if you left your house, and police were enforcing that, sending you back if you stayed out longer than an hour. He said that uh, all supermarket queues were an hour long, and 
that you weren't even allowed in if you didn't wear masks and gloves, which is just rubbish. Anyway, I'm guessing that this was sort of Chinese whispers style reporting, where poor old Joe Nasera got off the phone from his son in New Zealand, where he had got some partial information, and then as he came to write the piece, he joined the dots and came up with a pile of not quite true details. But what I like best about this story is what came next. So regular Kiwi tweeter Paul Brislin tweeted a link to the story and suggested that rather than correcting the errors, we should make up some even better ones for Bloomberg's readers. And we're all obliged. Um, thus, we learned through following down through the Twitter thread that in New Zealand, coffee has been illegal, that gardening has been banned, that pooing was constrained to alternate days in the manner of Carla's days to save on toilet paper, and that each night we all have to stand at our front gate to be counted by the government. Uh, one person suggested that daily gargling with disinfectant was mandatory. Who knew? My favourite was from a person who said it was mandatory to line dance while waiting in line at the grocers. Quote, this is our one hour of physical activity a day. The police enforce it. An excellent idea. I will propose this to Jacinda Ardern when she next comes on the pod. Now, Plague Playlist. What do you got, Adam? We've got a bit of a backlog, really, of uh, email suggestions for parodies and tributes and silly songs and inspiring songs that would be suitable for the Coronavirus NZ Plague Playlist. But today, just because I've been asked to by my friends Nikki and Janet, we're going to play this one. Yes, it does sound rather like David Bowie's Space Oddity, but it's been tweaked into a celebration of that chap, Captain Tom Moore. Ground control to Captain Tom. Ground control to Captain Tom. Go and get your walker and put your medals on. So you know Captain Tom. Right, He's the 99-year-old who's proving to the British that A, old people are really kind of amazing. So perhaps it was never a very good idea to let COVID-19 ravage the country until herd immunity kicked in. And B, if your health system's low on cash, you can always walk around your garden and raise $60 million to fund it. Amazing, really. Joe Kerman is an associate professor at the University of Otago. Her research interests include applied cellular and molecular immunology, medical microbiology, vaccine immunology, and technology. So many ologies. But we've called her up today because we're interested in immunity, which is an itty rather than an ology. But anyway, Joe, we always like to start with the very tough questions. What is immunity? I think a nice example of that would be if you've had, as a child, if you've had chicken pox, you're very unlikely to get chicken pox a second time. Mostly people tend to be immune to getting a, a reinfection with a particular disease-causing organism. What's happening in your body when it fights off diseases like that? What, what, you know, how does immunity work? We've got two major arms of our immune system. We have the innate arm of our immune system, and that acts really, really quickly. So it's always ready to fight an infection, but it does so at a very broad, in a very broad way. So it's not specific to a particular virus or a particular bacterium or a particular fungal infection. It just very, very quickly acts it can tell that there is some kind of disease-causing organism there. 
and it tries to keep that at bay initially. But we have another arm to our immune system called the adaptive immune system. And the adaptive immune system is very, very specific, but it's a bit slower to come into play. And the adaptive immune system um, consists of things that you, you probably would have heard of antibodies. And antibodies are really, really specific protein molecules that can inactivate a particular disease-causing organism. So it can inactivate a virus, for example. And there are other adaptive immune cells called T cells. And T cells can either kill directly in a, a virus-infected cell or they can help antibody-producing cells to make the right type of antibody. And when we have immunity, what happens is that that very slow but highly specific adaptive immune response actually comes in really, really quickly. So rather than having to wait several days or a week for that adaptive immune response to kick in, it will actually kick in straight away. And so those people who get exposed to that particular organism their immune system's working so hard and so quickly, they may not even know they've been exposed because they will not have any symptoms of that infection, or they might have very, very mild symptoms, but they would not get a severe infection that second time. So on to the virus that the whole world's talking about, severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2, which causes COVID-19. So if you've had COVID-19, are you immune? That's a very good question and one that hasn't really been answered yet in a satisfactory way. The common way of thinking would be that, yes, you should be immune because we've got many examples, uh, like I've just explained to you, uh, of viral infections where you've had that infection and you tend to be immune to that. But at this point in time, there's not enough data around to tell us that that would definitely be the case. But I don't think it's silly to presume that it would be. Presumably we know a bit about older coronaviruses, which are involved in things like the common cold, right? So there's a lot of different viruses that cause the common cold. These are things like rhinovirus, there's adenovirus, there's uh, respiratory syncytial virus. There are so human metanumovirus. I could keep talking about all the different viruses that cause respiratory symptoms that we call the common cold. And of those, there are coronaviruses that cause the common cold as well. It's very difficult to say whether or not we get immunity against those viruses because obviously you might get a cold one year and then you get a cold another year, but you don't actually know which virus has caused that cold and it probably won't be the same virus. There aren't a large number of studies looking at coronaviruses, particularly in immunity that is generated by coronaviruses. And this is a different type of coronavirus, so we really don't have that data yet. Is it possible that anyone could be immune without first catching it, like a, a sort of a natural immunity to coronavirus? That is a, a really good question, and I think the fact that we see a spectrum of disease in individuals suggests that people's immune systems are able to cope with this virus infection differently. And things that can influence how you cope with the infection are the infectious dose. So if you get a low-dose infection, you are more likely to be able to control it than if you get a very high-dose infection. And I think a nice illustration of that is probably when you're looking at medical personnel. And internationally, you're seeing some quite young medical personnel getting very severe disease. And it's probably due to the fact that they've had a very high dose infection. 
And we see that quite often in studies of all sorts of different disease-causing organisms, the higher the infectious dose, the more severe the disease. But you do see this spectrum of disease across uh, the population where some individuals are having very, very few symptoms. They might lose their sense of taste and um, sense of smell, but they're not getting any severe respiratory symptoms. And then... Sorry, I'm just, my animals are fighting in the corner. Do you mind? <laughs> you go deal with the animals. By animals, do you mean children? No, no, I mean actual animals. We've got some foster kittens and they were having a tussle and my dog was getting all stressed out looking at them. I've completely lost track of where we were. We were talking about some people being able to naturally fight the infection. That's where we were. Yeah. So some people will be able to fight the infection better than others, but we wouldn't have a way of knowing who those people were at this time. So let's say that immunity to COVID-19 works, that it does develop and people are going to be uh, unable to catch it again for some period of time. That's obviously a pretty useful thing to have. And there are some quite dystopian ideas um, being discussed around things like immunity passports, where people who can prove they're immune to the virus can work while others have to stay home. Germany is looking at introducing certificates and China is looking at QR codes on phones. Does this make any sense at all? It makes sense. The The morality side of it, I wouldn't like to comment on. Um, but it is something that has been done a lot in the past when we've had plagues sweeping through Europe. It was recognised that people became immune to these plagues and those people were used to tend to the people who subsequently got sick because it was known that they would be less likely to succumb. So the idea of getting an immunity passport that says, yes, I've had this infection and I now have antibodies, I think there are some big issues with that. Simply from a scientific perspective, that even if we know that someone's got antibodies, we don't know that those antibodies are protective and what a protective level of antibody looks like. So until we have that information, I think it's very premature to be giving people immunity passports based on a test. You could easily see some unintended consequences there, like people self-infecting so they can get on with it and get back to work. And in fact, I can see that happening even if you haven't got a formal certificate system. It, it, it would be useful to be immune. So what do you think about the idea of self-infection or, you know, up-to-date chickenpox parties, but for COVID-19? The idea of vaccination is to give people a harmless form of the infection that the immune system can see and then get educated to develop a memory response. The idea of a chickenpox party is they see the actual pathogen, so they see the actual disease-causing organism. And while most individuals are fine with chickenpox and they will get this infection and they'll itch and be uncomfortable, but they will get better, some individuals actually get very, very severe consequences from that. And that's what we try and circumvent by having vaccines. So the idea that you could take that risk and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm young, I'm under 40, my chances of getting severe illness are very low, and then deliberately infect yourself. It's not taking into account the fact that there is risk to yourself doing that, because young people, for example, are suffering from clotting disorders, so the incidence of stroke has gone up in young people who are otherwise have COVID-19 but don't appear to have many other symptoms. And there are plenty of other risks. But one other risk, which I think is the most important thing that 
isn't being considered is your chance of transmitting that to someone who's very vulnerable and could die. And that is why I think it would be a very foolish thing to do, a very selfish thing to do, to infect yourself deliberately with that risk that you could actually infect someone who's incredibly vulnerable and could die from that infection. I've heard a little bit about the use of blood serum from people who've had COVID-19, so directly transferring antibodies from an immune person to a sick person to help them fight the bug in that moment. How does that work? And do you think we'll be seeing it used in New Zealand? That idea of passive antibody transfer, I think, is quite an exciting idea. The idea that you could use serum from someone who has had the disease and has recovered, so they should have high levels of antibody, particularly if they've recently recovered, and transferring those into someone who's currently with disease. I think that's a very reasonable and sensible approach to take, particularly with someone who has very, very severe disease and has been hospitalised because of it. It's at the moment exploratory, so it's being investigated as a potential therapeutic avenue, but it's a very sensible approach to take. Hey, Joe Kerman, this has been fascinating. Uh, thank you very much. You're very welcome. And I hope the kittens behave. <laughs> They're lovely most of the time. They were just having a Barney just that one moment. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Tuesday the 28th of April. I'm Adam Dudding. Here's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Kylie Klein-Nixon, Joe Kerbin, Alex Liu, Catherine George, Patrick Crutzen and Carol Hirschfeld. Thanks for joining us for another week. You can find us on all the podcast platforms and on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email viruspod at stuff.co.nz. Vale. Vale.